you're listening to Out of the Box with Rosie Tran. You can find Out of the Box on Stitcher or iTunes and click subscribe if you like us or leave a comment. Out of the Box podcast is sponsored by HugMeTees.com. HugMeTees.com. Spread love. Give a hug. HugMeTees.com. I am so excited. I'm here today with Mr. Money Mustache. How are you doing today? Oh, thanks, Rosie. It's good to be a guest on your show for the first time. <laughs> I'm really excited about you. I actually got requests from some of my listeners to have you on the podcast. That's kind of mysterious. I wonder who these people are. <laughs> I got a couple emails and even my brother-in-law was like, oh, you need to have Mr. Money Mustache on there because he is preaching what you are preaching, which is alternative lifestyle, alternative thinking, and you're doing it with money. Yeah, I guess that's true. So tell my listeners, for those of um, who aren't familiar with you, you run a blog and you advocate a certain type of thinking that's a little bit different than the mainstream. Yeah, I try not to scare people away by <laughs> using the F word of frugality. So my blog instead is more of a, um, a description of a slightly less ridiculous lifestyle that leads to much better results, you know, and um, the basic idea from my own story is that you can retire a lot earlier if you don't spend all your money. <laughs> and so my wife and I uh, retired at just about age 30, which is like nine years ago now. And people still find this to be a questionable claim, but uh, it's pretty much inevitable if you just, you know, Follow if you your have to get on you, board early. That you talk about. Um, yeah. well, so why do you think people are so scared of frugality? Well, because we've been trained right down to the cellular level that more is always better. So like more income is, of course, better than less income. How could it not be? And and that means more spending is, you know, if you earn more income, you don't spend it all, then you're not getting a better life. And so many people have internalized that, that if I propose that you don't spend all your money and you you give it to yourself instead, you know, invest it, then you're not going to be as happy. And it turns out that's just totally wrong. And you can actually be much happier even while you spend whatever amount of money you want and the rest goes to your freedom fund and then you end up with this great life of not having to work. Well, that definitely sounds like a good life. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about your personal story. What got you and your wife on this path? You know, obviously you started early and wh what triggered you guys to say, hey, we want to get out of the rat race. This is not cool. It was kind of a weird stumbled in situation. You know, I grew up in this other country called Canada where back in the <laughs> 70s and 80s, it wasn't quite as flashy as the U.S. where I live now. So, um, you know, you just had a bit of a lower key lifestyle, like a Honda Civic instead of a Honda Accord and <laughs> just little things like that. And then I... Um, and then it's I really funny that you say that because one of my good friends, Christina Walkinshaw, who's a... Um, pretty popular comedian in Canada. She always would tell me that when she was out here, she would say, hey, Honda Civic is really fancy in Canada. <laughs> she would, would, <laughs> I don't is. know why. That's what the rich people, well, when I was a kid, since uh, since the oil boom, Canada has kind of um, turned into a little bit of an Arab Emirates kind of country. And now everybody has like Mercedes, you know, GL 450s and stuff. But back when I was a kid, that's when I learned my value system. So it's... Um, it's kind of different. And then I got this job as an engineer. That's what I went to school for. And then I worked in software. And I moved to the U.S. and continued that field. And it's a pretty good paying job. Not like super high paying, but, you know, you could have a nice car with that salary. But I didn't buy a nice car. And uh, I kept investing. And then that resulted in uh, being able to retire pretty young. So what do you say to people that, because it sounds like you and your wife are on the same page, right? 
We were. It was kind of gradual, though. Like, oh, yeah. So your question was, <laughs> I forgot. I got totally distracted. But when did you decide to do this? And it was um, as this money started building up, we were thinking, hmm, what should we do with this? And then kind of, you know, we did some reading. I've always been interested in finance. And then the idea of early retirement kind of kind of came out of all this, you know, like, hey, when you have investments, they give you money every year. And we were thinking of starting a family at some point. So we figured, hey, maybe we could quit working on time to have our first child and then both be full-time parents because we thought that it would, it would really suck to have a career that you're devoted to and then a kid that you're devoted to and then you can't decide which one you really want to focus all your powers on. So it was child raising that, that got us motivated to uh, retire early. That's very admirable. Why did you decide on both not working instead of maybe you working and your wife retiring or being a stay-at-home mom or something like that? What made you decide both of you guys? Well, with one person staying home, that's just the normal thing. That's the old-fashioned way. We wanted to do something, you know, a little bit better than normal. So it was kind of a challenge. And um, it just seemed more fair that way, right? Like instead of having one person quitting and the other one getting to keep doing their career or whatever one, whatever thing you consider more fun. Uh, this way we both get to do the more fun thing because you can, of course, still do part-time work after you're retired, according to my definition. Uh-huh. And the other thing is I remember single income families, some of my coworkers, they were still really compromising their careers by, you know, like, oh, my kid is sick and my wife is away, so I have to leave and I can't go to get this work done. And it just seems like kids were a big commitment. And uh, I would I wanted to be able to give it my all instead of like being supposedly this good career worker and then just taking off at three o'clock because school is out that day or whatever. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I mean, you say that that is, the con- you know, conventional to have one parent at home. But I think in this modern day, it seems like more and more people are having dual income households just to keep up with their crazy expenses. That's true. That's one of the things I like to make make fun of the most is because a lot of times it'll be uh, a bunch of expenses that are quite quite hilarious if you look at them from an outside perspective. There was a great story actually in uh, Washington Post and people forwarded it to me today and it was like, ah, oh, these people are masters of scrimping and they still can't get by on two incomes. And then it goes on to describe <laughs> how this lady was going to the beauty salon and her SUV broke down and then they had to replace it with a financed brand new car and that blew their budget and and it was lost on both the case study people and the reporter where the problem was in this story. I couldn't agree more. I'm actually, uh, my husband and I are not retired yet, but we're on the path and we're very happily on the path. And um, we're both 30. So we probably will not be as early as you because we didn't start as early. But I constantly hear people saying, I can barely make ends meet. I can barely, you know, make it paycheck to paycheck. And yet, I see certain expenses in their lifestyle that are just, they're saying that they're needs, but they're really, really, really wants. Right. Yeah. We pick these things up from each other as a culture and start to think they're normal. And that's why I always joke about my previous countries because, you know, there you don't pick up quite the same things. For example, in my whole college career, I don't think I went to dinner more than, you know, went out to a restaurant more than about once or twice in the whole four year period Uh because that was like a phenomenal, like, incredible luxury like 20 bucks on a meal (laughs) how could I possibly justify that that's insane and I did it because I thought I was being Mr. Mr. Donald Trump style guy those two nights you know they were about a year apart but then now I see 
students in this country, they'll do that every week and they'll like go to spring break, you know, fly down to Daytona Beach or over to Europe and it's all going on the student loan. And then they show up later and they have a car during school. You know, I just had a bike. And then they come out at the end and they're like, education is so expensive. It's $100,000 <laughs> debt. College, nah, middle class is terrible life. No one even knows that they're, they're screwing it up for themselves. Well, what I like about your blog is the personal responsibility because I think that there is a lack of personal responsibility in our daily financial intelligence and a really high level of blame. People who get called out on their horrible spending habits get really defensive and they blame the economy and they blame, I mean, insert 20,000 things that they blame. And I love that you're telling people, hey, take responsibility. You need to figure out your, your expenses. That's true. I do get in trouble quite a bit for that. And uh, <laughs> you do? Do people attack of, you, or do you get angry letters? A lot of complaints. Well, especially if um, if my blog finds its way onto the mainstream media, which it does a couple times a year. Uh-huh. You know, like um, you know, there was a Forbes article recently, or Wall Street Journal, or something, and they're like, "This family retired early by living a sensible life," and they're like, "Sensible? That <laughs> sounds like a terrible life." And it's, oh, his wife's going to leave him because she, she, he's probably not treating her right. And, <laughs> Or like, they're lying, it's totally fabricated, now let's get back to the real world. There's just so many complaints come in. And, um, you know, my style of being a little bit provocative, I do that because it's fun and I'm aware it's not the best psychological tactic to try to convert a really defensive person, but I just have to do that because I'm retired and I'm not going to do something that's not fun. That is hilarious. Um, I just think that, well, first of all, to... I guess, put fuel into your, uh, your point of view. Um, I live in Los Angeles, and which is one of the most expensive cities in the United States. And my husband and I make very, very medium. I mean, I've Googled the statistics. We're literally in the total medium income. We don't, we're not considered, I, I think we're actually considered lower middle class according to earning standards. <laughs> Yeah. And we are able to live on a budget and have tons of extra money for savings. Yet I constantly hear people saying we're in a horrible economy. There's nothing they can do. They're totally hopeless. They're victims. They they just are scraping by sent penny by penny. And I'm not understanding what what's going on. I mean, do you think we're just brainwashed to be mindless consumers? That's that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, you could make a really you can boil it down to a really simple concept, especially in L.A. Is, um, you can look at your cars first and how much you're wasting on cars because the middle class income is huge compared to food, but it's not very big compared to the cost of owning and operating a car, especially if you're one of those clowns who drives like 20,000 miles a year, you know, just for recreational and commuting use. Or do you so, have one of those cars where it t- costs $200 a week to fill up the tank? Yeah, exactly. So if you're like... <laughs> you know, making less than $500,000 a year and you're driving a Cadillac Escalade any significant distance, then a big portion of your money is just going to that that stupid truck. You know, <laughs> transportation is something that you have to think about. You know, that's at, at levels of income that aren't super high. You actually have to work and, and minimize how much you drive and drive a real car. That's just one concrete example. There's all kinds of other stuff too, you know, like the whole restaurants and what you choose to do for recreation and everything, but cars are really the big one for for most people. So what would you say are the top three major expenses that people are draining their money and actually putting themselves into an indentured servitude to keep these items? 
besides the cars, I guess um, it's going to be f- maybe food next. And I don't usually pick on housing too much because most people don't go really overboard on housing simply because no one will lend them enough to do that because they've spent so much on their cars and, and food and and recreation. There's usually kind of a miscellaneous budget that I don't understand either. You know, like people do <laughs> this activity called shopping, like where you go to a store and you don't even know what you need and then you come home with stuff that you didn't plan to buy. And that can add up to like, you know, in the five digits per year too. So, Do you think that once you have a retirement um, plan or residual income in place, rental properties, other things like that, that it's okay to go on a shopping spree? You think that entire mentality of consumerism is just not, you're eliminating it and you think it should be eliminated? It's healthy to eliminate. I mean, you can certainly get yourself set up with enough income that you can afford to do that. You know, you can, as long as you work and save enough, you could have a crazy lifestyle and still not, you know, and still retire. But I'm hoping that if you follow the way that I suggest, you kind of get get rid of these bad habits and suddenly you realize they weren't making you happy anyway. And then um, it's just better, better for all involved, including yourself. So what are some of the ways that you would encourage, you said your wife was on board, I mentioned this earlier, and... But some people I know, maybe they're really into finance and their spouse is a shopaholic or their spouse is, you know, like, like I am lucky to have gotten my husband was not on board and I actually got him on board with the financial program. And now we're both saving and, you know, following a plan very similar to yours. Um, We have other investment um, people that we follow. But I know some people who say, you know, geez, my wife is just a shopaholic. I can't get her on board. Or, you know, my husband, you know, is just crazy and he loves going out to eat once a week and he won't give it up that's a tricky one and it should be viewed as a cautionary message to the younger people who are choosing their spouse because (laughs) instead of just looking at how tight the dress fits or how nice the (laughs) car and the cufflinks are you might want to you know make sure you're compatible in the areas of money too on the other hand i do hear a lot of really nice stories of of conversions you know mindset changes among people and one guy just sent me a pretty neat little presentation that he made for his wife. <laughs> like a PowerPoint? Cool. Yeah, it was like, it actually was kind of a PowerPoint, except he made it on this other little spreadsheet makey thing or presentation. It was very nice, though. And it was, it wasn't just, you know, you should do this, you should do that. Instead, it was saying, like, our dream together. And then it said, here's what we're doing now. And here's what this is going to lead us to in 10 years. And then it said, here's another thing where we could live right now. And if we did this for 10 years, we would be in this other situation. And then the other situation sounded really great. You know, like they ended up with $800,000 in the, you know, in investments and no mortgage and no loans and they can quit working and have their kids. These guys were in their twenties. And I thought, Hey, that's a neat way to do it. You know, and I've had articles too. I've written articles called selling the dream, a couple of them. It's a little series, and it, it goes into the psychology of how to explain stuff. And the bottom line is you can't just nag people like, I thought you already had golf clubs. You can't, ah. You, know, you can't just do that. Or you can't say, oh, that's dress. We can't afford that. Look at this credit card bill. So you know? it looks like you're advocating for giving the person a choice and saying, hey, this is the benefits. This is the pros of, of living this lifestyle that I'm that I'm asking you to live. Yeah, yeah, it's really that's why I call it selling the dream because <laughs> the lifestyle is fantastically better, but you you have to kind of 
present that picture first instead of just telling the person what not to do because everyone wants to defend what they're doing. Nobody likes to feel like an idiot or be told that they're an idiot. And um, But with all that said, you know, some people are really more ingrained in this stuff and uh, and there might be hopeless cases and people shouldn't be afraid to uh, get out of a bad situation if you try diligently for a long time and if it's important to you. You don't have to stay with a person who has completely different values than you. That's true. But there's also programs, I think, like Shopaholics Anonymous or some like addiction, gambling addiction type programs, because a lot of the spending is emotional. Oh, yeah. It's all, all of uh, our spending is emotional to a certain extent, whether you're a shopaholic or not. If you're buying yeah. anything besides baked potatoes, you're, you're trying <laughs> to buy happiness and feelings. So the extent to which you go overboard on that. Uh, kind of explains how much your emotions are being fed by your spending. That's my puppy barking in the background. Uh, She's the co-host of Out of the Box podcast. Her name is Mitzi. She's a Jack Russell Terrier. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, did you feel, so you're saying that this is emotional spending. Did you feel that once you guys disconnected from this consumerist lifestyle that you felt a sense of newfound confidence or freedom or that you started to view the world around you a little bit differently? Uh, definitely. I find that the benefits begin immediately. And uh, one of my favorite words, it's not a real word, is badassity. We use this on the <laughs> blog a lot. Okay. Is once you start to feel that you are becoming more badass, which is, means a more capable person who can actually accomplish some stuff for themselves, that's a really, really rewarding feeling. It's much more rewarding than having a nice, nicer car, or like a nicer iPad or something like that. Is like oh, you can actually, you're tougher than the humans around you, and you start to have this sense of accomplishment. You could use bicycling, cycling instead of car driving as an example. You know, like it is a completely more powerful experience. It basically turns you into a superhuman, and you get around town without traffic jams, and you get in shape while you do it. And hardly anyone in this whole country does it. But you know, if you get if you start cycling and become better at it, you are becoming a badass and, and that just makes you happier. <laughs> That's a really cool way to look at it. Like you're getting superhuman powers. You're not susceptible to the little small uh, value systems of the people around you. Yeah. And you're not giving up anything. You're actually giving yourself something, even as you drastically include, improve your uh, money situation. Even even Los Angeles people can become... <laughs> even complete, Los Angeles people. <laughs> yeah, you can become completely cycle, you know, cycle transport for most people in that city could, even though nobody does it right now. Are you guys a two-car family or a one-car family? Well, I happen to own two vehicles right now, but by um, by normal standards, we're a zero-car family, just in the sense that we don't use them for for any kind of normal purpose. <clears throat> so all errands within the town, we always do it by bike and I uh, just fire up the car, you know, for rare occasions. For example, when someone's coming to visit out of town, I'll take it out to the airport, which is 45 miles from my house and pick them up, give them the nice treatment. But we don't need these cars at all. They're kind of this luxury, wasteful thing that we indulge in just because, well, they're not very expensive either too. Like our car's total value of these two things is about $10,000. So what about grocery shopping? What do you guys do when you're at the grocery store and you need to carry multiple things home? Are you guys, do you guys have a like basket system on your bikes or? Well, there's a neat thing that I discovered. I used to think you needed cars for groceries too, but um, you can use a backpack for small stuff, but the ultimate solution for groceries is just a trailer. 
And you can just grab these things off Craigslist for a hundred bucks for a really nice one. Like a bike trailer. Yeah, bike trailer. And typically the ones that people use to carry kids are the best ones because they have this nice cover <laughs> on them. Okay. You're laughing. I'm not laughing at you because <laughs> I'm laughing that it's not practical. I'm laughing because I imagine these little trailers and people thinking there's cute little kids in there and then there's like a cabbage. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, actually, that gets you some extra safety for those of you that are concerned about danger on the road is... I am uh, because people think there's kids in there. Yeah, so I'm biking (laughs) home from the grocery store. It's totally full of jugs of milk and cantaloupes and all this stuff, and and everyone's giving you a wide berth, a nice safe berth on the road because they're like, oh, I don't want to crush the child. But really, (laughs) childs of milk jugs. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's full of beer or or (laughs) even like coils of wire and stuff because I'm I'm building a house right now, so I'm and I'm doing all the construction myself. So I go to Home Depot with my bike trailer, and. yeah. And then you can even go bigger. I also have a second bike trailer that's eight feet long. So it can carry like lumber and Christmas trees and just all appliances. The other day I was carrying a, a whole range on this trailer. Really? And uh, yeah, bikes are amazing hauling devices. You'd really... And you, uh, and you probably are getting really buff. <laughs> well, as much as my genetics would permit, yeah, I'm sure another other men would be much more buff than I. <laughs> Dragging a range? That's pretty... That's intense. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, bikes are great and they really don't have any limitations other than the fact that you can't go um normal person can't go 100 miles a day on a bike, but but for normal errands they're spectacularly useful and I'm trying to trying to get people excited about that. I'm excited about that. <laughs> um what I want to discuss, I know you talked you said just now, you know, some people might not think it's practical uh for everyday errands to ride a bike. And what I notice is that our perception in this country and in developed countries in general is a little skewed about what is practical because even a person in America who has very, very little means, who's below the poverty line in this country is probably would be considered middle class in the third world. Yeah. Or extremely rich or extremely wealthy. Yeah. Depending on the country. So when people say, well, that's not really practical, they're kind of looking at things through a certain perspective, which is also coloring their finances, I think. Yeah, if you have these expectations where it's normal to have a car and it's normal to have everything brand new and normal to have cable TV service and you know, $150 cell phone, because everybody else does, then it's really easy to use up an entire salary. And regardless of how much you earn, it's not until you get over about... I don't know, a couple million dollars a year that it starts getting hard to use up, you know, any type of salary. So the the solution is to look at the other end, which is your spending, and you can live a very happy life on, in this country, I'd say, you can get down say, below 7,000. Yeah. You think below 7,000? Yeah, 7,000 or maybe 4,000 if you're really, really hardcore. And I think of that as a floor. I don't come anywhere close to that myself, but <laughs> that's because I don't need to because we have an even higher income, but it's nice to think of that as 4,000 is a frugal life. So therefore my lifestyle is super exorbitant and decadent. If you play that mind game on yourself, then you can really appreciate everything you have and you don't, don't overspend. So what about people that live in bigger cities like New York or Chicago, where the cost of housing is kind of expensive? Do you think that that's realistic to say 7,000? Well, the example of 7,000 is actually based on a blogging friend of mine, this guy named Jacob, who had the blog Early Retirement Extreme. He lived in San Francisco for $7,000 Which is one of the most expensive cities in the U.S. That's a good example. Yeah, I think it beats L.A. So It it does. (laughs) 
<laughs> it all depends on how you want to do it. So he had this neat strategy of he had a beautiful location, but he had an RV in a um, in this park, you know, like a trailer park in a great location. So he could walk everywhere. And the land, the lot land rent price was something like two or three hundred dollars a month. And then he bought the RV for some small price, like twelve grand for a surprisingly nice one. And then there's this whole living cost. And then everything else in the country isn't really all that much because you can get cheap groceries in any city. Even in Hawaii, where I spent last winter, it was I was able to get affordable food. And bicycles are always free. Gasoline is, is cheap anywhere in this country, not that you need to use that much of it. Um, yeah, and it kind of depends. I want to talk about food because there's this scare that I constantly see online about inflation and in in the media on CNN on other channels talking about inflation food inflation people can't afford to eat people can't afford to live and my grocery bill for my family of two and my two puppies is about 60 to I would say under $100 a week Um, and I just go to the regular grocery store and then I go to uh, like a saver grocery store So I'm not understanding what people are talking about with these crazy grocery prices where people can't afford to put food on the table. And I, I literally don't understand what the media is talking about. And I don't know if that's because I've unbrainwashed myself into the frugal lifestyle or if there's something I'm missing or, I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you're not, um, you're not missing anything. That's kind of the only place where food is, is to the extent where it's getting hard to eat is uh, places like Rwanda or whatever where, where you have to live on a dollar U.S. per day. Here, the food, it goes up and down occasionally, like uh, limes are really expensive right now, but uh, it is, it's been dropping since the 50s because the food production has gone, gone up so fast because of the Because efficiencies. of the global economy, yeah. Yeah, and because of this agri- agricultural revolution, and you might not like the factory farming. I don't really like some aspects of it. But you can't deny that the food is just dirt cheap. But you have to understand how to get your food. You can't just buy a bunch of prepackaged goods. That's you know, something that are- else that bugs me. And I don't get it. I always hear people saying, well, you know, it, it's just not fair because, you know, fresh food is just more expensive than than processed food. And that's why America is so overweight. And I go to the grocery store, I would say two to three times a week. And the cheapest thing at the grocery store is, is always fresh fruits and vegetables. I'm not understanding what these people are talking about. It's just people who haven't done enough math, I guess, because potatoes you can get for... A giant bag for 99 cents, a five exactly. pound bag. Like, that's what that's... I'm not understanding. Thank you. I feel validated, Mr. Money Mustache, because I, I get into this argument with people all the time where they say, well, food prices are just out of control. I can't afford to eat. And, you know, well... They, they're they're saying that you know, they're thinking that I'm shopping at Whole Foods. I'm going to the regular grocery store, and the fruits and vegetables are always a hundred percent cheaper than anything else in the store. That's true, and especially if you understand the calories that are in each thing. Like I always say, potatoes are a lot of calories. I don't eat a lot of them myself, but I would if I if I had to save money. And if you get oils, stuff that's good for you, like olive oil, especially at Costco. You're getting billions of calories for for pennies. You know, you cook up some some awesome spicy eggs in a big lake of olive oil, and you get this thousand calorie or five hundred <laughs> calorie breakfast for for pennies, and you and it's really good for you too. It's completely great kind of muscle burning, low fat. I mean, low high fat results in a low fat physique. Basically, that's another another thing that people don't realize is that a high carb and high sugar lifestyle is is a big part of our problem. 
Do you think people are just ignorant or uneducated, or do you think it's a it's a matter of defending what's what a, someone's lifestyle is? Like someone who has a very unhealthy lifestyle, saying, "Well, I just can't get healthy food." That's the reason. I believe they would like to know the answer, and because this blog that I write has a lot of people reading it now, and I get a lot of emails every day and comments saying that people made a lot of changes and and appreciate the difference it's making in their their finances and their health. There's people changing every day, but if you don't start to look for the answers and if you just insist there are no answers, then obviously it's going to be pretty hard to find them. So um, I think that's a good point. Um, so what are some of the techniques that you uh, talk about in your blog? And obviously people can visit the blog after the podcast and check out more information. But what are some of the techniques to get people started? Obviously, you said frugal living, but what, what happens after they save this money? What are you advocating people invested in? Well, you don't want to leave it in your checking account or savings account because then uh, I guess that's not too bad because it'll at least give you some peace of mind. But really, um, investing is a super important part if you're planning to become financially independent. So, I'm, so just saving is not enough for the yeah, average right. Okay. And saving for spending is kind of dumb too. Like, oh, I'm so frugal. I saved up $25,000 and now we got on a great wedding <laughs> and, then, and you're broke again. You know, like, no, you s- you save the money and then you invest it and you don't spend it ever. So buying um, – I'm a big advocate of index investing, which is kind of the the simple, reliable, statistically most profitable kind of in- investing where you just go to Vanguard, the Vanguard investment company, ultra low fees. You just buy index funds where you get the entire and US. And those match – the stocks on the index. Is that yeah, correct? right. Okay. So you, you end up with just a big slice of all of the American businesses and possibly all of the world businesses in the developed countries. And then you just forget you ever bought it. Every time you have more money, you buy more of it. And it pays you dividends every three months. And the principal appreciates. And once you get a certain amount, uh, turns out it's about 25 times your annual spending. If you get that much saved up, you can more or less quit forever and just because withdraw the 4% a year. Is it because the interest will make enough money for you that equals your spending? Is it? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Dividend checks are going to be most of your spending, and then you can sell a tiny bit of the shares, and they're going to go up faster than you sell them. So overall, the whole package that you saved up goes up faster than inflation and keeps you happy even 50 years from now. It's still going to be more than what happened when you retire. And you do can you- also do the same thing with rental houses. You know, that's the same exact idea. A rental house is just like owning a company, except it's a tiny company where you are the boss and the factory is your house. And people are going to work every day to give you money every month. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) I have a rental house right now too, and I've had more in the past, but stocks are easier. Rental houses tend to yield a little bit more in exchange for a bit more knowledge and work. So would would you advocate diversifying and having both, or are you saying that stocks are a little bit easier in general for someone? It really just depends on your personality. A lot of people who are my blog readers are pretty do-it-yourselfer kind of people. A lot of uh, there's a lot of guys in the tech industry, for example, guys and girls, and and they are they like to figure stuff out and they like to manage things and start businesses. So so there's a huge landlord proponent or la- landlord component in that readership. Um, other people are really afraid of rental houses, or maybe they live in a place that is uh, too expensive to have good price-to-rent ratios. So for them, if you don't want to get adventurous and buy far-away rentals, you should just invest in stocks and feel good about that instead. So what 
what would be um, a hurdle for someone uh, that is renting out of state? Finding a good rental manager or what, what would intimidate someone about that? That's about it. It's You have to really know the local market at least a little bit in order to know what's a good value, a good neighborhood, um, what the type of people are that are the renters in your town. And, and you have to buy this house in the first place. So for most people, it works out well if it's a city that you live in because you know your neighborhoods and you're like, oh, yeah, that Bayfront area has been coming up and getting better. And there's great transit center nearby and the rents I know are $2,000 a month. You can buy this house for, say, 300000 or whatever and rent it out for 2000 And that's a pretty good use of your capital. That's just one example. And now if I was going to go try to figure that same thing out in, say, Louisville, Kentucky, I don't know anything about that city. So I might accidentally buy a house in this condemned area or I might might end up with a lot of vacancy or whatever. It can be done. It just takes some research and you might have to visit the city and, and ask if you're, around. But that would be the main, you would have to get like a property manager or something out of town that you trust or a company that you trust. That's true. Yeah. You need someone to manage it and you'd need to find local contractors to fix things like the water heater if you if it needs some maintenance because you don't want to be traveling out to Kentucky to take care of your rental house. That's a, that's a good point. Um, do you have properties out of state or are they all in state? No, there's only one right now. And even that's going to be sold this year. Um, but I, I've never had any rental houses that were not uh, within a biking distance of where I currently live. Because uh, I like to do all my own work too. That's just my my thing is kind of carpentry and, and home building and stuff. So if something goes wrong on a rental house, I like to go fix it myself. I find it a lot less stressful and it's obviously less costly too. Do you have a certain ratio that you have people use, whether the property is going to be profitable or not? Like a cost, good... a cost to profit ratio? Yeah, there's a lot of flex in that in that number, but... Um, Versus maybe investing in stocks? Yeah, in sto- investing in stocks, you kind of just buy it and hope for the best, um, especially <laughs> you'll do a little better because it's a really long-term thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, the stocks don't fluctuate quite as much as as uh, rental houses do if you're considering rental houses all over the country. But here's a here's a really simple rule of thumb. If you can get 1% of your property's value uh, in rent every month, then that's quite good, in my opinion. So a $100,000 house that you can rent for $1,000 a month that's great. would be good. Some landlords are really strict and they insist on double that. But the only way to achieve that is to buy kind of a multi-unit thing in a not-so-good area. We would buy an eight-plex in kind of a drug crime area then you then the building will be dirt cheap and the rents will be lowish but not as low as the property price so i wouldn't go much uh, much further on the other side though like for example don't buy a five hundred thousand dollar house and then rent it out for one thousand dollars a month or even two thousand dollars a month because it's not worth it you have to allow for property taxes and all this money that's getting tied up and the chance of things going wrong and everything which is why in San Francisco and places like Berkeley, the rents are way too low compared to the house prices. So I wouldn't buy one to rent out. And in fact, if I was, were to move to that area, I would go straight to the rental market instead of buying a house. Because you can rent a house in Berkeley for $3,000 that would cost almost a million dollars to buy. And it's a much better deal to be uh, on the renter side in that equation. So have you ever heard of uh, like um, leasing to own type things or, or financing uh, the renter to buy the property? Have you? Would you advocate for that? 
that, that's all kind of a gimmick I find. I, I try not to get mixed up in that. Like, for example, if you have a renter who wants to buy a house that you own, then they, they'll just buy it. If they've got their finances together, they can easily get a loan. If they because don't, I, then- I know someone who is like they're quote unquote being the bank for their renter, and I don't know, I don't know anything about that. So I was wondering if you, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it can work, but in general, I would rather just put it on the open market and then let somebody who has the money right now come along and buy it. Especially given that um, the U.S. is in a fairly good real estate market again these days, as buyers again, prices are going up. I was wondering because he was talking about how he was making he was making the payments or the, the renter was making payments to him and that was a benefit to him, but I didn't know anything about that. So I wasn't sure if you advocated yeah. for that or not. And there's, there's some tricks involved too, because suddenly if you have a contract like that, then the renter is now an owner because they have a contract to buy the house. They kind of, they're kind of already buying it, which means if they stop paying, then it's much harder for them to get kicked out because they're like, now you get into this whole foreclosure rule set yeah, instead, instead of, of just rental. So, you know, there would have to be really, really crazy financial benefits for the owner to justify the extra crazy, you know, the extra hassle of that situation. Otherwise, just let the rental go on. No problem. If someone wants to buy it, they can grab a bank loan. Then you get the full price for your rental right away. And then you never have to think about it again. Okay. Um, so I know that you talk about saving half your income and it sounds like it's pretty doable for, you know, maybe a couple or something. What about someone who's not making that much money? Maybe they're making fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year and they don't have someone supporting them. What are some steps that they can take to get towards financial freedom? Because I know in my situation, my husband works and then all of my income goes towards savings, so it's super easy for us to save. Yes, dual income people have it pretty pretty good and hopefully more people will realize that. Um, instead of saying life is hard and you need two incomes just to survive. But it all depends on what your goals are and and how badass you're willing to become. Um, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Not a lot of times, um, if you're making $15,000 a year, there's there's often quite a huge upside in what you can earn. So I kind of have this $100,000 guideline, whereas if you make less than that, then there's probably some advantage to be had into trying to earn more. Sometimes easier said than done, but sometimes uh, easier done than said. Um, but if you make more than 100000 that's so much that you can pretty much save it really easily and become financially independent anyway. So at the 15 side, that person should really be looking into trying to earn more. At the same time, you could still do whatever you want. You know, You can find a way to live for free like Magnum P.I. did on the uh, luxury house in Hawaii just for (laughs) some kind of insider deal. And special arrangements are really a great thing. If you're a nice person and you get along well with people, you can often get things like houses, places to stay or food or whatever in exchange for services or whatever. So you get a cheaper life through, you know, just being a nice person. (laughs) What a concept. Um, I have two more things I really want to discuss and then, you know, we'll see where the conversation goes. Um, One is alternative income. Um, I know uh, a couple financial gurus or, you know, bloggers and other things recommend getting a second job or getting, you know, a third job and paying down all your debts till they're gone and just, you know, sticking to it. Um, Are you an advocate of just, you know, working and saving 
and investing or, you know, should it be kind of like a race to the finish where someone can get three or four jobs or is it just a personal decision? Definitely nothing wrong with that, especially if you're younger and you don't have any children yet. So you can, because I've never really regretted any hard work that I've done in my life. It's always kind of, even if that night I fall down exhausted, the next day I think, oh, that's amazing that I did so much stuff yesterday. Did you have multiple jobs at one point? Not, um, as an adult, I just worked as an engineer. I worked really hard. So I got a lot of kind of salary increases and bonuses and stuff. And then on the side, I did renovate my own houses. You know, when I, the first house that I moved into was a really, really crappy 1970s ranch. And so I worked all the weekends fixing that up while I worked during the days as an engineer. This is before becoming a dad. So I had all the time in the world. My wife helped me. And that was pretty nice. It's kind of like a second job because the house increased in value by maybe $100,000. You were putting sweat equity in. <laughs> exactly. And then when we rent, when we left, we rented that place out for a few years. And that was higher income than it would have been if the house hadn't been so nice. And then when we sold, it was worth considerably more. So that money went straight into the retirement fund too. Um, yeah, that's actually a pretty good second job for anybody who does own a house is become good at home renovation and get your house in really amazing shape and fix stuff up, do a good job. And that's completely tax-free income. Anything you make on your primary residence uh, just doesn't get taxed and it's just straight to the bank. Um, Also, I want to address, do you think that a college education in this day and age is not a good investment since kids are leaving school with $300,000 in debt, $100,000 in debt, and just not being able to pay it back for years and years and years it's um it's definitely not always a good investment and it's certainly not required to get a good job in many fields so those are the good things to tell yourself when you're shopping around for college the other thing is um i would i would have never even considered doing an out-of-state college because it costs so much more back when i was a kid uh, in canada it costs less than it does here but I just looked up the tuition for Colorado University near where I live here, and it's quite affordable. It's under ten grand for any program per year, so that's forty thousand for an entire degree. You can easily make ten thousand a summer just working as a house painter or whatever. So there's no real reason to get in super debt. On the other hand, let's say you want to go to Harvard Law School, and you're from a high-income family, so you can't get any uh, grant assistance, and it's going to cost you a couple hundred thousand. I guess that's okay. If you're really if you're ready to commit to being a lawyer when you graduate, you're going to make enough to pay that back within a few years afterwards. So that would be a case where college is is totally worthwhile. I would just say what you don't want to do is sign up for random XYZ liberal arts college across the country. <laughs> it's privately run, high high tuition, prestigious just so you can broaden your horizons and then you come out with no plan for a job. And then you're like, oh, college is so expensive. Don't do that. That's a that's a really stupid idea. So why do you think there is such a huge, because there, there seems to be a huge uh, shift in college debt where students are getting more and more heavier debt loads. And I think they were saying that college loan debt now is um, bigger than, you know, housing mortgage debt and the burdens are heavier and heavier. Where, where is this coming from? I believe it's just a massed trend, a mass trend toward ridiculousness. <laughs> first of all, 
private colleges in a lot of places have been raising tuition just because they can, not even just not even because their costs are rising, but just because they're like, hey, there's lots of federal loans available to fund these kids. People are willing to sign up, so we're just going to charge more. So, so do you think factor. that it's a lie? Do you think it's a lie that the costs are going up? Because I hear that all the time. Oh, college costs are going up, so colleges are having to raise their tuition prices. I'm sure that's true as well, but there's no reason for that. The costs should be going down when you think about it, because the because more people are going to college, right? Yeah, the the internet means that information can be spread so much more easily. You don't have to have everybody on campus all the time, and you can disperse professors and students all over the country and you don't need fancy buildings there's no real reason in my opinion for for these tuitions to be going up so when the price of something goes up and the value delivered doesn't go up you you don't have to buy that thing anymore you can get a great education for free in a lot of places and i just find that the internet has thrown such a loop into all of this it's made it free to get a great education it's allowed you to connect to people a lot better so people should just be really a lot more skeptical before they go blowing a lot on college, unless they're already so rich that it doesn't matter. <laughs> Do you think in certain ways college can be a scam because of the fact that um, a lot of kids go to school for one degree and then maybe get a job in another degree that or another field that has nothing to do with obviously if you're a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer a very specific field but a lot of kids go to school for english lit or you know writing creative writing or maybe um not or design or something where they think oh well i'm going to be a graphic designer i'm going to be an artist or something not necessarily an artistic field but just one field and then they decide oh what you know they can't get a job or they go into the real world and it's not what they think and so uh, i think the statistic is about 40 percent of people actually go into a career field that's not what they studied so it seems like what is the the point of all this well i guess you you don't always want to look at college as purely job training because that's kind of an insult to the original intent of higher education because you know you're still going to learn a lot of useful stuff if you take it seriously but I think the real thing is just looking at prices and shopping around by price and not being idealistic and saying, oh, I'm going to move across the country for such and such a program. Just think about those dollars as real dollars. And in fact, what I would do actually is insist on myself not borrowing any money, which is how I did do it in real life. And uh, you save up in advance and you earn money as you go. And if it's too expensive for you to do that, then don't do it. <laughs> then you just don't do it. It's no big deal. Same reason you don't, not everybody has a Tesla or an Aston Martin or whatever, some kind of billion dollar car. Like because Aston you don't have don't the money for it. So you just don't consume that good or service. Do you have 529 plans set up for the kids? Um, I only have one son. You but have one son. I do not, I don't do a 529 plan for him, partly for the reasons we're talking about here. Because um, number one, I believe in him that he's going to be able to earn his own money. Um, so I'm not going to tell him that there's all this money waiting for him. <laughs> so you're not saving and, for his college? You you want him to empower himself? Yeah, well, we're done save. I mean, when you're early retired, that means you have many college educations <laughs> worth of money <laughs> okay. already saved up. So you can take some of that. You can take the change out of your wallet and pay for your kid's education if you need to. But you don't want them to know that because it might turn them into lazy trust fund brats. So instead, you kind of set the idea of what we're talking about where you you earn your own money and you find ways to do it affordably. And don't forget the whole community college to get half of your credits in advance and then you do 
the accredited university for the last two years. Um, one of my friends is a lawyer who has a very, very high income, very prestigious job now. And he got half of his law education just from his local community college. Then he jumped over to the in-state, fairly good university. It wasn't Harvard or anything. Got the rest of it. And now he's doing the whole lawyer style salary and and he did really well in it and he's he heartily recommends that for anybody doing any field so how did you come up with the idea to start the blog mr money mustache um the blog was kind of born out of frustration because (laughs) okay i started this we did this saving up lifestyle quit working around 30 just before turning 31 and then for several years we were just my wife and i were just anonymous non-working people uh, raising a kid and all of my working peers you know the folks we used to have jobs with continued to make more and more money and and then still have none they kept saying oh i can't believe you guys don't have any debt or don't have to work or whatever we whenever we let that kind of stuff slip because they were completely broke so why were you guys keeping it anonymous i'm just curious well, and not letting it out for people to know because you didn't want people to know you had money or you just were, it was private, it was personal to you or? Yeah, we didn't want to seem like braggarts. So we kind of just quit working. <laughs> okay. And then gradually people realized like, you know, I was doing a little bit of carpentry as a hobby, but, and getting paid for it a little bit, but they kind of put two and two together and realized like, wait a minute. <laughs> They're like, wait a minute. We have two like $100,000 jobs. And your carpenter job makes maybe five or 10000 a year. How can you keep going? <laughs> and then I said, do you really want to know? And then they said, yeah, we do. So I invited a bunch of people over and gave this kind of little sermon on um, saving and investing and spending and, and explained. And it was clear to them what they were doing wrong. And, and that actually upset some people. They're like, well, I don't think we should talk about money anymore because, you know, it's a very personal topic. And uh, and then I thought, oh, fuck this. I'm just going to make a blog. And uh <laughs> And just explain this to the world because nobody in person wants to hear it. But I think people don't mind reading from an anonymous stranger a bunch of financial advice because I'm not really judging them personally. And well, the were you format, judging your friends or do you think they just felt judged because they were, weren't doing the most savvy thing? Yeah, I tried not to sound judgmental. I just tried to sound <laughs> like these ideas are great. Look how they work. But, you know, secretly, I probably was thinking that they're their ridiculous brand new SUVs were not the best choice financed on <laughs> on credit and the crazy $2,500 road bikes and and giant wardrobes that don't even fit in a single bedroom's closet and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah I do tend to be a little judgmental, <laughs> but only for people's best interests. It's friendly judgment. So you started the blog and it just evolved from there. Uh, yeah, the blog is about three years old now. And so, and our retirement is more like nine years old. So, but it has grown to take over my life and, um, because it's become so much fun. So I've typed up 400 of these articles I just noticed today on my list. Um, and there's still lots more to say. And there's a lot of people that are actually making changes, which is what keeps me going. That's what the exciting part is, is that I actually, my often spoken mission is to save the, um, the United States from destroying the world from its consumption habits. <laughs> that's a very, very good goal. And that's probably one of the greenest things you can do because of all of the crazy consumption. Um, let's talk about frugality and then uh, we got to wrap up. But you talk about cutting the food bill, cutting 
um, the crazy motor vehicle bill? What are some small steps people can take to, you know, who maybe aren't ready to dive into the water, but they want to stick their feet in? Hmm. Well, you could do something like getting a new cell phone plan that's not as expensive. Most people still have $100 plus bills. And in recent years, a bunch of competitive companies have caught, have popped up that cut these bills while not really offering, you know, the same, the service is just as good. So I'm kind of a fan of this one called Republic Wireless, where it's 25 bucks for unlimited everything. And a lot of people were excited about that discovery showing up on the blog because family of uh, of four, if they happen to have four cell phones, it can go from $400 down to 100 That's one of them. I also want to add on to that. I just want all the listeners to know that, you know, some people are really snobby about their cell phone service and they say, well, you know, this service isn't as fast as this one and this one is not. Uh, guys, they all use the same cell towers. There's actually a certain amount of cell towers that are part of the infrastructure and different companies like AT&T or Verizon or Sprint rent the time and rent the bandwidth. So when you think that your whatever brand cell phone is superior, you're wrong. <laughs> well, that's true to an extent, but I, I do know that sometimes there's two competing cell towers in one region and one will be better than the other. Like, for example, Sprint supposedly has less good coverage in a lot of areas and Republic, the one that I like, uses Sprint and Verizon supposedly has better coverage or more towers <laughs> or whatever. But but then again, with the Republic phone, it actually roams automatically onto Verizon if the Sprint one's not working. So a lot of so, the yeah. small, a lot of the small, like Republic Boost, uh, Virgin, um, Metro PCS, a lot of the side competitors are actually uh, what is it called? Where they actually belong to a bigger company, but they just are branding themselves as a small, a different company. Oh yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah. Um, and they and they use the exact same towers. Not all of them, but like right. you said, you know, Republic is using the same cell information as Sprint. And Sprint, they're charging ninety nine dollars a month unlimited. Yet Republic is charging twenty five dollars, and they're you're getting the same service. Yeah, that's a great comparison. So you'd never want to actually get Sprint service, and because you can get it through other sellers that are lower. Yeah, so that's and, what I wanted to make because some people are really snobby about having a certain brand, and oh, I just yeah. want I just want listeners to know that a lot of times they are using the cell t- same cell towers. That's true. And then there's other stuff like I'm a big uh, advocate of giving up TV, not just cable TV, but all TV because I think it's it's total it's total Trash. waste of time. <laughs> I yeah. totally agree with you. We have no cable. Uh, I We just have Netflix. And a lot of people cannot believe they're like, well, how can you not have TV? You know, well, what do you do for fun? This and that. And we have enhanced our minds and our physical bodies and our emotional well-being so much by cutting out television and it's just a brainwash and also a a total drain of time yeah it's really bad for your brain i think and you're right netflix i'm not against that and we still have netflix in my house and we watch cool like science documentaries with my eight-year-old son and it's a happy time but we don't do it every day (laughs) we you know it'll be maybe once a week we'll we'll crank out crank on a couple of these these nice documentaries and a lot of work goes into them. Regular shows and sports. I mean, as a guy, I'm probably not supposed to be saying this, but <laughs> watching sports on TV is the most ridiculous activity. Like, just go out and do some some damn sports. There's so many ads in between the sports things, too. So you're just completely rotting your brain with just just crap ads and then pointless guys running around that aren't you. Well, I call it... Um 
you're you're basically watching a bunch of multimillionaires have fun doing what they love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and you're not doing it. <laughs> so when, when people object to this TV idea, my ultimate suggestion is just try it. Like try it for even a week or preferably a month and just see what happens in this time that you are suddenly not watching TV. And what you'll find is your life gets better. Like the stuff on your to-do list starts getting done. You spend more time outside. You start getting in shape. You start earning more money in all these different ways and read more books. Books are very good for you. You become more creative. And anyone who says they don't have time, cut your TV out of your life. And all of a sudden, so much time will emerge. Yep. Time that you never thought existed. And you'll say, oh, I have all this time. I was watching yeah. TV all the time. <laughs> so those are two tiny tips. If you want to get a tiny bit more hardcore, then then start riding your bike for tiny, really easy things. Ride your bike to whatever is closest to your house. It might be just the the jogging track where you go running, or it might be this convenience store where you just get refills of milk and eggs or something. Well, now I want some more hardcore tips. <laughs> <laughs> all right, two more hardcore tips and then we got to wrap up. <laughs> those are those are all easy tips, but yeah. No, I want hardcore tips, two hardcore tips. <laughs> um, I can't think of stuff like that on the spot, but if you look at this post of mine that's called, um, if you just search Google for the word, for the words middle class to kick ass, <laughs> you'll see the complete list of everything that makes a difference between $140,000 of spending for the kind of an upper middle income family, slicing that down to twenty five or thirty five thousand, which leaves you saving a hundred thousand, and it's all the tips from easy to hard. Actually, none of them are hard. It's just getting rid of the ridiculous stuff of your life. So pretty much any upper income family can end up saving two thirds of what they make just by following the tips in that article. I am reading this article right now as we get off the podcast. I'm so excited, <laughs> Mr. Money Mustache. Uh, okay, so guys, check out MrMoneyMustache.com. Um, are you on Twitter? Yeah, I do have the at MrMoneyMustache um, name on Twitter. And where can we see you next? What is going to be next with the pod- with um, the website and the blog? Are you going to be touring? Are you going to be going and speaking at any conventions? Come on, Mr. Money Mustache. We want to see more of you. Well, you have to remember that I'm retired. So this blog is really a hobby. It gets like two hours a week of work on most weeks although this, <laughs> this one's been a bit funny and I have a new design that just showed up that took a lot of work so no I'm not going on any tours don't have any stuff to sell you're like I'm enjoying my retirement Rosie <laughs> yeah I have a son he takes all my time I'm going to be in San Francisco at the end of May and there's going to be like a little party in some yet to be determined park <laughs> but that's about it well I am so happy to have you on here uh, thank you so much for being with us today Mr. Money Mustache guys if you enjoyed the podcast don't forget to visit outoftheboxpodcast.com and click on the donate button we're now accepting litecoins and bitcoins outoftheboxpodcast.com and don't forget to visit hugmetees.com hugmetees.com spread love give a hug hugmetees.com thank you so much for listening to Out of the Box <laughs>